Thanks, Will. <clears throat> well, morning, everyone. Yeah, I agree with Wilson. This is going to be a great day. We're going to see some really good things happen this morning. Um, hey, I wanted to start with a simple joke. Someone told it, told it to me on the way in earlier. Uh, so here it is, okay? If you know the answer, please don't shout it out. Um, yeah, I don't do too well with heckling. So uh, uh, what type of lights did Noah have on the ark? The, obvi- the answer is obvious, floodlights. All right, so let's move on from there, all right? In fact, that joke just illustrated something. When you have high expectations, and I tell such great jokes all the time that when I tell a joke, I mean, you expect to really, really be funny. When your expectations aren't met, you respond to it emotionally. And, and I want to ask, how many of us have some expectation of something, something you're looking forward to today? You know, maybe you're going to go out to dinner with someone, or uh, you are going to take a Sunday afternoon nap or a movie. Awesome. How many, how many are looking forward to pot roast tonight? Okay, nobody. Okay, I like pot roast. But um, when you have an expectation and, and it's not met, it, it has an impact on our hearts. And so what, what if I was looking forward to pot roast tonight? And that's what my expectation was on. And I'm the type of person that really, really likes food. And that's everything's on the pot roast. And I get to dinner and instead it's fish. What's it do? How do you respond? Well, how about this? What if my expectation wasn't on pot roast? And there's nothing wrong with with having an expectation on pot roast or lasagna or whatever you really like. But what if this? What if my expectation was really on spending time with my family? What if, what if I'm excited about that? We're going to have a family dinner tonight. We're all going to be around. The kids are all going to be there. We're all going to be together. And that's, that's my, primary, my primary focus. Then when I get there, if it's pot roast, then yippee, that's great. But if it's not, no big deal because my expectation is on spending time with my family. And you see, what, what you do when, 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 you, when you flip those things like that is what you're doing is you're putting expectations in the right order. And, and if we don't have our expectations in the right order, two things are important with expectations, timing and order. And, and if I have the right expectation, then being right, having a right biblical expectation, but timing and order. If I have the right expectation but the wrong timing... Or if I have the right expectation, but it's out of order, then I'm going to be disappointed. And and there's going to be some heartbreak that I'm going to experience. So today, the passage I want to look at really talks about uh, expectation. It's something God showed to me this week as I looked, read through the triumphal entry. And we're going to look at the whole thing from that perspective of where, where do we set our expectations? And... When we think about that, it's really important to recognize that to have a healthy heart, a healthy spiritual heart, a healthy relationship with God, we have to have the right expectations and we have to have them in the right time and in the right order. And so we're going to look at this passage. It's, it's really, it is of Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the last time well, for the, at the beginning of the week on his last week right up to the time that he's crucified. 
And so uh, let me give you the background of this passage. We're going to be looking at Luke 19. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 19 or, or your uh, phone or whatever. But um, in, in this, Jesus has spent the last three months on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, which wouldn't technically be called Israel. But if you remember uh, when Moses and, and the, the people came out of Egypt, there were some of them that stayed on that side of the river. And so Jesus spends three months there ministering to them. And now for his final push into Jerusalem, he has to go through Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan River and right at the foot of the mountains where, the, where there, there's the ascent actually to Jerusalem. You have to go through Jericho to get to Jerusalem. And as he's walking along, a young man approaches him. And, and if you have a Bible there and you look at the top of this story, if you were turned to it, you would see the heading, the rich young ruler. That's what most Bible scholars refer to him as. And this young man was very wealthy and he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him an answer and then Jesus invited him to follow him. But this man turned around and left Jesus. And it says he was sad because he trusted and found more comfort and security in his money than he did in actually following God and, and what God had for him. And so he left sad, and it says that Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him. It means that Jesus was actually moved internally with compassion for this young guy. Even as he's rejecting Jesus, Jesus feels compassion for him. And so as they approach Jericho, there's another man alongside the road, and his name is Bartimaeus, and he's blind. And, and he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. People tell him to be quiet, but he perseveres. And he identifies Jesus as the son of David, which is really insignificant, because he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And there's something more personal about that than simply Jesus heal me. There's, there's something more, more of a heart there for God when he recognizes you are the Messiah and, and I want to receive my sight. And so Jesus heals Bartimaeus' eyes so he sees. So, Bar, so Jesus continues into Jericho and he has another really key encounter on his way through Jericho with a man named Nicodemus. Not Nicodemus, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day were considered to be traitors because they worked for the Romans. and They took money from Israel and sent it to Rome. And so Zacchaeus would have been a man that was an outcast. He was a man of small stature. So he had to climb a tree to see Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. And in the course of that dinner, Zacchaeus, in talking with Jesus, makes this declaration. He says, half of everything I own, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone or the people I have wronged, I'm going to pay them back four times what I unjustly took from them. And so Jesus then says this. He says, salvation has come to this house. See, Jesus knows that the religious leaders and most of the people would be very critical of him for going into a tax collector's house. And so he makes this declaration. He says, salvation has come to this house today because the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So he's saying, this is exactly why I came for men like Zacchaeus. And then from there, they leave, they leave Jericho and, and they, they begin their ascent 
up to Jerusalem. But right before he leaves, this happens. It's in Luke 19, and the, um, the verse, if you want to look it up, is verse 11. Luke nineteen eleven. Here's what we read. It says, while they were listening to these things, while they're listening to Jesus talk about, you know, his desire to come to seek and to save the lost. It says, while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the people think Jesus is going to Jerusalem, kingdom coming. They think that he's going to go to Jerusalem and release power from heaven to crush the Roman armies. They believe he's going to go to Jerusalem and there's going to be a power that reverberates out through the land that's going to heal every sick person anywhere in the land and that every person's going to be prosperous and, and they're all going to be successful in life. And this is what they're looking for. This is what they're desiring. And in order to correct their thinking, Jesus told them a parable. And in the parable, he told about a, a very wealthy landowner, a nobleman who went on a long journey and he left all of his possessions in the care of three of his key servants. When he came back to have an accounting for what, what was done with his stuff, there was one of the servants that said this. He said, I was afraid of you, and so I didn't do anything with the stuff you left with me. I just buried it. I hid the money you gave me. Here it is. You get it back. But I didn't invest it, and I'm not, I didn't increase it at all. And what Jesus says to that servant is that he was wicked. Because he did not fulfill the charge he had been given, which was not just to hold on to what he had, to keep what he had, but to multiply it. And the effect of that story is this, for anyone that would be listening with understanding, it was Jerusalem is that servant. Jerusalem is the servant that did not use what had been given to it. it that, that's the servant that took that had these great privileges but did not avail himself of those privileges. And so when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, what he's saying is, it's not going to be this great reception of the king and the kingdom. But Jerusalem actually is going to reject Jesus, and Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be hung on a cross for the sins of the world. And what they don't understand is, the kingdom is coming, but it's not coming in power at this moment. It's not coming with finality at this moment. What Jesus is doing is dying on the cross to defeat the kingdom of darkness, which he does by taking away sin and then resurrects from the dead. And he gives then to his people the authority and power to go out into the world and to do what we were originally commissioned to do, what Adam and Eve were originally commissioned to do, which was to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule over it. And so Jesus' first mission when he came was to return the authority of the kingdom to his people, to people that would believe in him. And you see, God, in his wisdom, he just decided, I mean, he could have just sent Jesus. Jesus could have died on the cross, risen from the dead. That's the end of the world right there. But that's not how God created the world. He created the world for you and me as human beings to rule over it. Adam and Eve messed that up when they sinned. They gave they gave this world to the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus comes now to crush the power of the kingdom of darkness and to say, okay, I'm putting you back in position to fulfill your original commission, which is to fill the earth, 
to, subdue, to fill the earth with image bearers. We do that today by sharing the gospel and leading people to faith in Jesus, by subduing the earth, and then by ruling over it. And so that's what Jesus is coming for. But they think he's coming for the second part. When Jesus returns, then he's going to take the very same power he has left with us, which we use so imperfectly... He's going to take that power and authority, and he's going to use it perfectly. And when he returns and he uses that perfectly, then the world will end into the, enter into the full expression and experience of the kingdom age. And so they don't understand that, and Jesus is trying to help them understand that. But with that as background, uh, let's look at Luke 19. We're going to read verses 28 to 44 total, but we're going to start off with 28 to 34. So it says, after he had said these things, after he had concluded his, his uh, thing in Jericho, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples ahead saying, go into the village opposite you, in which you ent- as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And the- those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so then they allowed them to take the colt. Now, when it says colt, we normally think of a horse, but it was a, it was a donkey. It was the, the foal of a donkey, a young donkey that had never been ridden on yet. And Jesus knew that this was going to happen because there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that said that they're, they're, when the king comes, he would come riding on the foal of a donkey. And so this was one of the prophecies that Jesus had some, some ability to influence. As Sarah shared last week, uh, the vast majority of them were well outside his control. And if you remember, if you were here, the, the illustration of the odds of that happening were so minuscule that it's, it's almost just like a given that Jesus really is the Son of God for anybody that really wants to look at the facts. But here, he, tell, he, he knows because of a word of knowledge. He knows because the Holy Spirit has spoken to him and showed him that you're going to go, they're going to go in, they're going to find this donkey right there, here's what they need to say. And so he passes that on to them, and they get that donkey and they bring it back. Now, the fact that it was unridden is just simply indicative of the fact that Jesus was king. He was Messiah, and he was worthy of riding a, a colt that had never been ridden before. And so when he rides this colt into the city, what he is signifying, it, it's, the symbolism is this. He's not riding a horse in armor. He's not coming into the city with a sword on his side, which was what they kind of expected. They wanted the Messiah to be the conquering hero. But no, he's coming riding on this colt. And as I shared, he's coming to crush the powers of darkness so that he can hand the authority of the kingdom over to his people once again. But as he's, as he's going, here's what we read. Verses 35 to 38. It says, And they brought it, brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, 
They were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, they started off at Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's here. Bethany would have been a little bit lower than, than Jerusalem. But there's a mountain in between the two of them, the Mount of Olives. And so that's about a mile away from Jerusalem, a little bit less than that. As he leaves Bethany, and they come, they come to this mountain, and he crests the mountain. And you can look down from that, and you can see all of Jerusalem just a little bit lower. But it's a beautiful panoramic picture of the city. And at that point, uh, somewhere right in that region, they start, they start worshiping. And, and the people start shouting and praising and, and, and giving glory to God for the fact that the Messiah is coming and the kingdom is coming. And what I picture is this. There would have been thousands of travelers on that road because they're, they're coming here for Passover. They did it every year. And this Passover, with, uh, with Jesus being in the picture, it would have been more excitement. And even as we read earlier, they're excited because they really think the kingdom is coming right now. And as they get the word that Jesus is coming and that he's, he's on the same road they're on, the crowd just divides. And they, they form a line on each side, kind of like what we're going to do later when we have the kids on, on two sides and we have a prayer tunnel that you get to walk through and get prayer. And so Jesus is going down through this and they're worshiping him and they're praising and, they're, and it says joyfully. So as, as, uh, as that happens and as they're joyfully shouting this, you know, this, the dynamic news that the king is here and the kingdom is here. Now, I want to just do a small aside right now and say, although they had the right thing, the kingdom is here and the king is here, the timing was off because they, they're, they're expecting the fullness. They're expecting the, the king to come and crush their enemies. And as well, I suspect that maybe their priorities were off also. Do you remember there's a place in the Bible, it's in John 6, where Jesus fed thousands of people miraculously just from a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And, and this multitude of people, uh, thousands, are fed just with a handful of food. And then the next day, it says they were all seeking Jesus. He went to the other side of the lake. They go around the lake to find him. But John uh, editorializes in, in, the, in the story, and he says they came... Not because they saw the miracles and believed he was really the Messiah and they wanted to be with the Messiah. They came because he fed them. Now, that's a kingdom thing. When the kingdom comes, people are gonna, there aren't going to be any poor people. There, there's going to be food, ample for everyone. Everyone's going to be prosperous. And so they had the right thing, but they had it out of order time-wise. And I believe they had it out of order and priority. And so as, as we read on here, we see that uh, Jesus is challenged now. The Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So this is a powerful statement because there's, there's a, a quite, a, a, quite a ruckus going on with people dancing and shouting and worshiping. And Jesus says, if they don't do it, then the stones are going to cry out. And you might say, well, he's just hyperbole. He's just using that like as an illustration, extreme illustration to make his point. 
But in the Old Testament, there was a place where Moses struck a rock and water, water just flowed out of that rock. And so I want to say this. If that could happen, then why couldn't a rock speak if God wanted it to? And why couldn't a rock express praise and worship to Jesus? So I'm just going to take this literally. And I'm going to say, if they hadn't worshipped him, the stones would have worshipped him. Because this is such a key, crucial moment in the history of Israel and in the history of all mankind. But what happens is this. What I see in this is this. That... Part of the natural order of creation is to worship and praise Jesus. That's just part of creative order. It's it's just part of it. That the way God created this planet, it's the planet itself. The way God created it, it responds to the presence of the creator. Now, I, I would have an easier time thinking about that if you were telling me that the plants if if the if they if these didn't cry out then the plants themselves would tilt towards me and worship me by because you know we know plants will tilt towards the sun and things like that but he says he uses an extreme here the stones will worship me and so there's something about creation itself that cries out for God's presence That's why in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, it says that before his face, the waters flee, the mountains crumble, because creation itself longs to be right. You read that in the book of Romans. It says creation itself eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Because as the passage goes on, it says creation was not subjected to futility because of something it did, but because of something we did. And because of Adam and Eve sinning. And so when we are made right, and when sons of God, by sons of God, it means, of course, daughters of God too. Um, But when the children of God are fully revealed as who they are and walking in their authority and power, then that's when all of creation is going to be restored and renewed as well. And so what this tells me is that worship is such an incredibly important part of what what we're created for and, and what God wants that we should never hold it back. We should not hold it back. And in this culture, it would not have, when it, when it says that they were joyfully worshiping, that doesn't mean that they were, you know, standing with their hands in their pockets and, and instead of singing down towards the floor, they lifted their faces. No, it would be like really excited. It's a really emotional uh, type of a thing. And so there would be a lot of excitement and joy and dancing. And so I, I think part of the challenge here for my heart is greater freedom for myself, for us, just in worship. We were at a conference recently in Champaign, and a good friend and one of my key mentors in life, Happy Layman, on one of the nights of the conference, as worship was going on, he tore his shirt off and ran up on stage and danced. (laughs) Wasn't pretty. (laughs) Wasn't pretty. I'm always kind of like afraid, boy, if I tried to do this or do that, you know, it'll look like you know, I'm a goofball, or worse yet, if I, if I get excited and try to jump up and down, I'll probably fall down. And, I mean, I have these anxieties about that, and Happy was up there dancing, and, and again, it wasn't like, you wouldn't put him on TV, okay? It's not, it's, but he didn't care. 
He did not care. We talked about it afterwards. He didn't care because he was expressing himself to the Lord and he was exercising freedom, which because of who he is, was helping to free others as well. And, and there needs to be something like that, some freedom. And I'm not talking about us doing things just to be showy or, or anything like that, but trying to, you know, just in, in excessively drawing attention to ourselves. But, um, but just to be free to worship and, and to be free to express our hearts to God is just a crucial part of this whole thing. And so what happens next is when Jesus crests that hill and, and he sees the city, he weeps. And he laments, he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known that this was the time of your visitation, if you had only known, if you had only responded the right way, but because you haven't, because you're not going to embrace me, you're you're setting things in motion that the very Romans that you want me to defeat are going to crush this city. That's basically what he says. And it's all because you didn't recognize the day of your visitation. And I want to say this, that brings it back to relationship. And when we're setting priorities and we're thinking, I want the kingdom of God, I want the kingdom of God, and I want healing, I want to see healing happen. And, and no matter what, I'm gonna, I want to see healing happen. That can't be my first, that can't be the first priority. The first priority has to be, I want to know Jesus. I want to experience his life. I want to walk hand in hand with him everywhere I go. And when that happens, then healing will happen. And when that happens, then we'll be able to release prosperity to people and, and, we'll, and we'll be able to see people, we'll see people freed from things that are gripping and destroying their lives. But it is like the people here, I believe, were desiring the benefits of the kingdom, but they weren't really thinking in terms of the greatest benefit is the king. The greatest benefit of the kingdom is the king himself. And so as a first priority, it's the relationship with Jesus. I want Jesus. I want him. I want him in my life. I want him more than I want. I want a successful, healthy marriage, but with Jesus. You know, I I want health, but with, I want prosperity, but with Jesus, with Jesus. I don't want that if if it comes without Jesus. I want Jesus first. When we get that right in our expectations, then there's a lot of healing that happens in our hearts. And a lot of good things will change as far as how we view other people and how we view our life circumstances. Uh, We're going to end this by reading a declaration. And um, I I hope you can read it with me. If it doesn't, if it just doesn't strike you, then you're, you're welcome not to, of course. But I want you to stand with me, okay? Just thinking of this whole idea of expectation and where our expectations should lie. So let's read this together. Read it out loud if if you can from, from a good heart. So here we go. God, I make you my chief expectation. I set my desire on knowing you. I want your power to live in freedom, but only with you. I want your blessing to prosper and be in health, but only with you. I want your authority to release your kingdom to others, but only as you walk with me. When you said to me, seek my face, my heart said, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. So, Father, we lift that to you today as the prayer of our hearts. 
we, we don't look at the people in Jerusalem with any judgment because we know what human hearts are like and we know how easy it is for us all to, to stray. But we express now to you, we want hearts that say, your face we seek. And we want the blessings of your kingdom, but we know they come out of relationship with you. And so we want you, Lord. So Lord Jesus, come today. Holy Spirit, release your presence here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, okay? If you would, please, uh, we're going to receive our offering. Baskets are on the left. If you grab the basket and pass it down the aisle, the ushers will be here to pick them up in a moment. And uh, what we're going to do after that, then, we're going to go into worship. And uh, every year we have have had the children come out with palm branches. Uh, There were palm branches that they were waving and throwing on the, the pathway before Jesus and the triumphal entry. And we, we last year, we thought, you know, we want them to do something more substantial than just walk through the auditorium because you need to know that the children in our kids' uh, ministry are learning how to pray for the sick. They're learning how to invite God's presence to come. They're learning about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And so they're going to come out. They're going to make a a trek through the auditorium. And then we're going to have one group over here. They're going to form a prayer tunnel with with some adults as well. And then another group over on this side that will form a prayer tunnel over here. And what we'd like to ask you to do is to go like this whole half of the auditorium. Go out, back around, and come down and go through this prayer tunnel. And this half of the auditorium, go out, around, and come through this part of the prayer tunnel. Now, of course, you are free to stay in your seat the entire time. Um, but I, so, some of you may have never had another person pray for you, ever. And this is a great, great, great opportunity to have that done in a, in a very unobtrusive way, where it's just everybody's, everybody's getting prayer right now. But the kids are going to reach out. They're going to touch you. They're going to bless you. They're just going to say, Holy Spirit, bless more of your presence, Lord, bless them in Jesus' name. And so this is going to be a joyful time, and we want you to enjoy it. Um, at the same time, don't, don't like get stuck there because there's a whole line of people behind you. And, um, and so make your way through. But uh, we're going to pray right now, and then we're going to go into worship. So nobody come down and worship until after the prayer tunnels are, are finished, okay? All right. So you want to stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we're going to start to worship. Kids, you'll see the kids coming in. Oh, by the way... If you have a child in this group and they run up to you, send, send them back with their teacher because we will have a major panic back there if we're, if we're missing children at the end of this. So please do that, okay? So Father, we, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. We want to make you first in our lives. Top priority, top expectation is to know you. So, Holy Spirit, we, we ask you to release the life of the love of the Father and uh, just exalt the name of Jesus today.